Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God. We're going to talk about uh, a little bit of uh, things that have come up in the last week and since uh, one of our earlier shows where we mentioned Noah, and we said that Noah was not a righteous man, and people took offense at that. But, you know, you have to take everything in context, Noah was righteous in his generations and found grace in the eyes of God because of that. You know, if you go to Romans 3.10, it says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Well, that would probably include Noah. Even in Mark 10.18, it says, And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, and that is God. In Luke eighteen nineteen, we see the same thing. And Jesus said unto them, Why callest me good? So you see that witness again appearing in, in the Gospels. You can go back to Psalms 14, 1, and it says in relationship to this Psalm of David, uh, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. And there's other places in Psalms 53. We see every one of them is gone back. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. In Hebrews, we see by faith Noah being warned of God. Things uh, not seen as yet. Moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became heir to the righteousness which is by faith. It wasn't that everything that Noah did was righteous. You know, we can actually go back and take a look at Genesis 6, 9 in a second. But if we continue looking at this Hebrews eleven seven. Reading the verse before it, which is, of course, 6. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Not perfectly seek him, although we are to seek perfection, but to diligently seek him. Abraham screwed up. And yet, we see in the very next verse after 7, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for uh, an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whether he went. This act of doing things by faith doesn't make us righteous, but in doing things by faith, we are found uh, we find grace from God. And and that's that's a message of hope because you know a lot of people are self condemning and we should not be self condemning and uh we should not be judging anybody else nor should we be judging ourselves. 
we should be examining ourselves and, and, and wondering and quandering about who we are and what we're doing and if we're doing the right thing. But um, this depressive, oppressive judgment of ourselves, leave judgment to God. First Peter 3.20 we see, which sometimes were disobedient. When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, wherein few, that is eight, souls were saved by uh, the water. He's talking about this period of long-suffering of God. God wants to grant you grace. Uh, He wants to give you forgiveness. But you, and you're not going to get forgiveness because you're righteous, but because you have faith, because you repent, because you exercise humility. You, you accept the fact that you cannot decide good and evil with your own knowledge alone, that you must listen to the Holy Spirit, to, to eat of the tree of life. That listening to the Holy Spirit and eating of the tree of life are really the same metaphors in divergent times, times that are so far apart, that we begin not to listen to the Holy Spirit, not to eat of the tree of life, but to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, very simply, we decided in our intellect, this tree of knowledge, that we were going to figure out what was right and wrong, and we were going to decide. It was going to be our flesh and blood that determined what was going to be righteous and unrighteous. We were going to be like God in that sense that we cut off ourselves from the Holy Spirit of God, no longer walk with God, but walk in our own ways. That's arrogance. That's not humility. We must humble ourselves before the Lord and be willing to admit that we cannot figure it out. And when we do that, then... If our heart aligns with the ways of Christ, which is, is the way of sacrifice and the way of loving one another, then the Holy Spirit will guide us, lead us, and we will walk with God. And it isn't a matter of magic names. And You know, if you think that it's important that you use a particular spelling of Jesus' name or of God's, uh, the nomenclatures that we use to identify God, you go ahead and do that. Uh, the woman who thought that she had to touch the hem of the garment of Jesus Christ, uh, because she believed that that's what she had to do and acted upon that faith, she was healed because of the faith, not because of magically touching the garment and reaching over and touching that garment. Uh, that's... That wasn't what it was. Any more than the Roman soldier said, you don't even have to come to my house. He had enough faith to know that you don't have to touch any garment. I don't have to touch any garment. I know it will be done. I know that you can do it. He had that faith. Other people don't have that faith. They think, oh, well, I have to touch this, or I have to say this particular word, or I have to say these groups of words or these phrases. And if I don't say these things, then I'm not saved. So, if that's where you're at in your faith, go ahead. But know this, you are not saved by witchcraft. You are not saved by idolatry. You cannot make these things where you 
if I do this, then God will have to to uh, bless me, forgive me, heal me. He doesn't have to. But God knows what's really in your heart. Because other people will use the same exact words with no effect. Because they don't really have faith in God. They have faith in the words. Very dangerous when you start saying, oh, we have to say these words. We have to say it this way. We have to spell it this way. We have to, you know, uh, genuflect and use holy water and incense and uh, all these uh, things that are not the weightier matters, not the things that Christ was looking for. These can really very quickly become idolatry when you start putting these things up. And people say, well, it is his name, and we go through these arguments, and we have, we have an article up on um, what's in a name. And somebody evidently read it recently or started to read it, and they, they took offense. They didn't get down to the end. And, and you know what they did? As soon as they took offense, they wanted to separate themselves out, which was the point of the article, showing you all these different arguments about, you know, names should be this way and that way. And, it, you know, Jesus is a derivation of Zeus and, and all these things that really don't hold up when you start looking at details objectively. But really, the message of the article wasn't anything about all those details and all that intellectualism that is always creeping in, which is just, you know, flesh and blood. It's just people's rationale. It's not the Spirit. And we were trying to guide people to the Spirit that the name of Christ is the character of Christ, not the spelling of Christ. And this is what, when you understand that word, that ancient word name, you know, go back in the ancient times and people gave somebody a name at birth and they gave somebody a name when they changed their status. They would get a new name. They're not a different person, but it's describing who they are. You know, Indians did this. The Saxons did this. The, uh, the Jutes did this. Uh, Celts did this. Even the Romans did it uh, early on. They even did it later, but usually the change was when you went and got you know, your status more in bondage in the civil law, that they'll change your name. And they'll add a new name or they'll they'll change the way they write it and all this stuff because they're changing who you are. But there's no magic in the spelling. They, there is either we are walking with the Spirit of God and we are using the tree of life as a source, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. Or we're creating dogmas and doctrines in our own imagination, in our own mind, which will lead us into bondage. We are not walking in the Spirit, but we are creating a uh, eschatology that we worship. We worship the eschatology and not the God that it's supposed to be about. And so this is something we have to guard ourselves against all the time. But anyway, we... uh, we see that uh, if you go down and, and you read in uh, Genesis 6-8 and 6-9, no, 6-8, let's start with that. It says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found grace, this favor in the eyes of the Lord. It didn't mean that he was completely perfect. But he found that there was a reason 
from the point of view of God to find favor in Noah. And and it was because of, and if you go back, you know, we see the words, these are the generations, but the word are isn't really in the original text. It's these, the generations of Noah. This is why he found favor, because Noah was righteous in his generations. It does say in the translation, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. We see the word and there, but again, that word and isn't actually in the original text. That's added to to make it flow. And the word just is often translated righteous. So, but it's saying that Noah was righteous because he was this perfect in generations. And he did walk with God, but not all the time. Not when he got drunk, wasn't walking with God. Uh, but he's, he was like King David. King David screwed up all the time, but he was king after God's own heart. He repented. And one of the things that he did was he created a draft. This is one of the sins that David did, and we don't usually use that word to describe it, but this is what he did. He went out to number the people to create a draft. And this creation of a draft was a sin against God. And he admitted it eventually and repented of it. Of course, 10,000 or 20,000, I think it was, uh, people had died uh, before he finally realized that this was a bad thing. I mean, people were uh, battling against him. And the funny thing is, this has also happened in our own history and many other countries. My great, great, you see, uh, my great-grandfather. Actually, I'm older than that. It's my grandfather. <laughs> I never met him. He died before I ever met him. But he fled Norway in order to evade the draft. And during Vietnam, there was actually talk about me going back to Norway to avoid the draft uh, here in America. I didn't. I d- chose to allow them to draft me. I'd already had an appointment to uh, Annapolis. um, And then when I was drafted, I was offered an appointment to West Point. But I turned those down. And eventually, long story, left the Army under uh, an absolutely legal uh, situation. But it was very interesting how that all unfolded. But I was willing to go and went into the Army to serve but I knew there were certain things that were not right about this whole thing. And, of course, there should be no draft. In a free nation, there is no draft. Whatever country you're in, if there is a draft, and there's actually proposals of civilian drafts uh, where you have to work for the government without pay even, or with limited pay. And, of course, everybody already works for the government without pay if you're paying income tax, that's the bondage of Egypt. And you're already, (laughs) you know, that was the thing. In in Egypt, 20% of your labor every year had to go to the government. And so you would work for the government. And they actually had a deal where you could go and send somebody else to do the manual labor for you. In other words, you would pay somebody to go and build whatever government projects they were uh, working on. And that was how you paid your 20%. 
and that was uh, that was called a corvy system of statutory bondage, and that's what the bondage of Egypt was, and that's prevalent in every country today in the world. It wasn't for most of man's history, but it is today because most everybody in most every country has gone back into the bondage of Egypt. The, the dog has turned to return to his vomit and the pig to his mire. We're making the same mistakes over and over again. And it's all very legal, and that's what we write our books about. And one of our books, Covenants of the Gods, and we share that with everybody for free. If you want to get it, uh, you can go to our website and get it. And uh, join the Living Network, and somebody will help you find it. And they'll even help you study it. We have free study programs all the time to help you go through this. And hundreds and hundreds of hours of audio explaining the books. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of footnotes in the book so that you can check it out yourself because that's being responsible and seeking the kingdom is about being responsible. A lot of knowledge and information, but really you're not going to get what we're talking about when we preach the kingdom of God and his righteousness unless you're following that Holy Spirit. You have to be following that Holy Spirit. And the fact that, you know, when we're recording this particular show, um, it happens to be the day that uh, uh, there was a draft instituted, I think it was 1940, Congress passed the Selective Service Act providing for the first or peacetime draft in the U.S. history. Now, there were drafts even back in the days of the Revolutionary War, but they weren't effective, and the the federal idea of creating a federal draft was just simply totally ineffective. Ineffective, even as as late as the Civil War, when they tried to implement draft both in the North and the South, it really didn't amount to much. There was only about two percent of the people were actually drafted, and there was a great deal of violence over this opposing the idea of a draft because they knew. That if you have a draft in a country, you're not a free nation. And just as they opposed it under David, people opposed it here in America. They had the uh, ability, if you had the money, you could hire somebody else to fill your draft position. And, And there were people who did that during the Civil War, where they, you know, if you went and signed up for so and so, then he didn't have to go. And he and people could earn extra bonuses besides their wages. You know, they would be paid the wages of the military, which didn't amount to much. And then they would also get a bonus from the guy who they were fighting on the behalf of so that he didn't have to go. The idea was there was this obligation to government. Now, you have a natural obligation to your neighborhood and to your community and to the nation. But it's a natural obligation and if free people have the right to decide how they will fulfill that obligation, if you are subject people, then they can force you to fulfill it according to the leading of what is in them, which unfortunately in most cases today, leaders are not led by the Holy Spirit, but they're led by the knowledge of good and evil. And, of course, this is what Nimrod did and Caesar and the evil Pharaoh. They were all led by the knowledge of good and evil. But they had the power to force the people to follow what they believed was good and evil. And they could force you. And, of course, that's the history that we see in the Bible. 
as nations rising up where the people are subject to the will of the Nimrods and Lamechs of the world and this other group that is seeking righteousness and led by the Holy Spirit, led by God, walks with God. And uh, this is this is going to be a common theme you always hear on this program. And we're going to try to get into Hebrews later on in the show and in the next show and probably the next one and the next one and the next one until we get all the way through Hebrews. And then we'll put it together in a collection like we've already done with Romans and we've already done with Ephesians. And that's all on the uh, Preparing You website which is one of our websites. There's uh, thelivingnetwork.org and hisholychurch.org and uh, preparingyou.com. And we provide services to all those people who you know, want to know information. We just posted something um, on the, the net uh, to what we call the Living Network. It just went out this morning. And it shows some of the new pages that have gone up just in this last week. And one of them is a page on um, audios and videos that we have available. Another one is a page on health, uh, the politics of health. And that actually covers uh, some things on vaccination and exemptions from vaccinations. These pages on the Preparing You site are created by you because, you see, the Bible, according to Wycliffe, who was one of the first people who translated the Bible into English, he said, this is the book for the government of the people, for the people, and by the people. And that's right. That this, the government of God is a government of, for, and by the people. The ministers of the government of God, according to Jesus Christ, don't have the right to exercise authority one over the other. They are actually servants. They are titular. And if you look up the definition of a republic, in at least older dictionaries, it's in many of the newer ones, although the definitions are changing, a common theme we talk about here, show you how... The definition of religion at the time of the Constitution is different than the definition of religion today. So if you use the word religion like you see in the Constitution, you need to go back and find out what it meant at that time in order to understand what they were saying. Because if you apply the modern definition of religion to what they were saying, you will not understand what they were talking about. So that's another thing that we teach people and show people. You know, with footnotes. So you can actually check it out. We're not making it up. We did our homework. Just like with this thing with with Noah not being a righteous man. Because none are righteous. But God. That's, that's all there is to it. There are things that we do in faith that move us towards righteousness. That are part of being righteous. And that will... Uh, God will find favor for us if we do this. This is why he tells us to repent. That means turn around and seek the kingdom of God. And he'll come out and meet you halfway because you will find favor in his eyes. But you have to be very careful that you're going the right way. And that means developing that inner spiritual compass. 
So anyway, we're going to talk about that, and uh, but we're going to talk about Hebrews, and we'll also mention a few of the other things that have been new on, on some of our websites in the last uh, week. And uh, we'll do all that when we return to Keys to the Kingdom after a brief break. So be right back. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And we're talking about some of the new changes at uh, His Holy Church as far as on some of our websites like preparingyou.com. God does want us to be a free and independent people. That's what makes us so peculiar is how we achieve that. Because we don't do it through covert or coveting means. We do not force our neighbor to contribute to our welfare. Uh, we aren't socialists in that sense. I mean, socialism is charity with a gun. And once you introduce the gun, it's not charity anymore. You've given someone the power to take from one member of society and give to another member of society according to what he believes is right. And the ones who want to do that are not following the Holy Spirit. They're following and eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They become very self-righteous and often become very unrighteous in their acts, which is why they lead to things like communism that ends up killing millions upon millions of people. I mean, Adolf Hitler was a social democrat, and Karl Marx was for democracy, because democracy leads to socialism, and socialism leads to communism. And everywhere we've seen communism... We've seen totalitarianism. It doesn't always raise its head immediately, but it comes because it opens a door to attract men who seek power because it is a centralization of power. They talk about it being for the people, but they have to give someone the power to do the things that the people want done. And uh, unfortunately, people become covetous. They don't love their neighbor as themselves and they will eventually ask leaders to take away from their neighbors so that they can have what they think they ought to have or what they want or what they think they need. And we've done that in America for uh, over a century now and it's gotten worse and worse and worse and it's going to get worse before it gets better. But the interesting thing is about getting better is it can get better in you right now. See, that's one of the problems and one of the blessings of seeking the kingdom. Seeking the kingdom, you can't force other people to go the ways of the kingdom, the ways of righteousness, the ways of faith, hope, and charity. You can't force them to do that. You can't, you can't force them to tear down their altars for them. But you you tear down their altars by exposing the lie in their altars, the foolishness of their altars. You tear them down like an iconoclast in in their hearts and show them. And you cannot do that unless you build up the altars of God. In other words, all those systems like Egypt and Babylon were created because men like Nimrod became mighty providers instead of God. 
How does God provide for you? Well, often through your neighbor. Uh, if you have a need and your neighbor chooses to give you, you know, you have no coat, and he chooses to give you a coat, you, he comes and he gives you a coat. He chooses to do that. Individually, he chooses to do that. And you should be choosing, you know, that if your neighbor, you know, uh, breaks his leg in a skiing accident and can't mow his lawn, uh, you should choose to go over and help him mow his lawn. And then when you have hard times, he comes over. But that's all faith, hope, and charity, you see. That's not force. That's not making a contract with him where he has to do it whether, you know, he wants to or not. And that's the difference between a free society and a society that's in bondage. It's that simple. Now, in order to do that, you have to gather together so that you know that your neighbor has a need. That's why you go to church. You don't go to church to have your needs fulfilled. You don't go to church to feel good because, oh, I love the singing there. It makes me feel so good. You don't have to go there so that God will hear you. Because, I mean, I don't care where you go. God can hear you. Uh, He probably doesn't hear you because he told you he's not going to hear you if you go the way of Israel when it elected Saul. He told you that this is what it's going to lead to. You're going to, you're going to give Saul the power to take and take and take and take and take. And he's going to do just that. And he's going to take your sons and daughters, you know, draft them. And he's going to do all these things. And you're going to cry out to me in that day, but I'm not going to hear you because this whole idea of electing somebody who can exercise authority one over the other is a rejection of God, which is why Jesus said to his apostles when he appointed unto them the kingdom, it was not to be that way with you, says it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm not making it up. He said it. It's not to be that way. You're not to be looking to men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. Yet all these people out here who are calling themselves Christians send their kids to public schools that are financed at the expense of their neighbor because men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority tax their neighbor. And that taxation is not a free will offering, but based on forcing your neighbor to contribute or you're going to take his house away from him. In a system of excise tax called property tax, it is usury. That is amoral. That is immoral. That is against Christ. It is against the teachings of the Bible from the beginning to the end. But it's legal. It's legal because you have not been seeking the ways of righteousness for over a century in this country. And it didn't happen all at once. It happened a little at a time. Rome was not built in a day. You did not go into bondage in a single day. You, it went on many, many levels, and that's why I had to write a whole book showing you many of those levels, 15 different chapters showing you many of those levels, in which you sell yourself into bondage because you love the rewards of men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. If you do that, 
You are not doing what Christ said. You are not acting according to the name of Christ. So you're not doing it in the name of Christ because Christ wouldn't do that. He wouldn't become king of over all the cities and rule over them because that's not righteousness. That's unrighteousness. You are putting yourself in the place of a God ruling people in flesh and blood. And God wants you to be ruled in your heart. This is how Christ said he's going to build his church. Not because flesh and blood reveals it to you, because my Father in heaven reveals it to you in your heart and your mind through revelation. Now, you can be deceived about what you, God is revealing. You can think, well, God wants me to go kill these people, or, or God wants me to, uh, you know, rob these people, or whatever. You can imagine that. But we have things like the Bible and common sense to check and say, wait a minute. If I send my kids to public school or just just take public school um, uh, benefits, you know, so there are homeschooling programs now where you can get uh, the the government will send you books and and computers and lessons and all these kinds of stuff, and you can keep your kids at home. They actually have a system like that in numerous states, but somebody's paying for that. And it's and they're amazed at how much the government will give you. Well, they want to give you more than you pay in taxes because then that creates debt. Any benefit you take from a government in debt is a curse on your children. Because your children will be held accountable for that debt. So, since Social Security is bankrupt, any money you take from Social Security is a curse on the future of your children. And your neighbor's children. Because they're, they're, they don't have the money to pay you. It doesn't exist, hasn't for years and years. I don't care, you know, people talk about lockbox. That, that's a, that's a bunch of hooey. Go read the law. We, go read Not Social Secure, Social Security on our website. It will show you the laws that have been passed, the Supreme Court rulings time and time again. There is no separation of funds. If the Treasury is out of funds, Social Security is out of funds. There is no division of funds. So any dime you take from that treasury, whether Social Security or EBT cards or whatever it is, any benefit you take has to be paid by somebody in the future. That means your children. So when you read those items, you go look in your Bible for where it talks about cursing your children. That's what they're talking about. You're cursing your children. If you're not teaching the ways of faith, hope, and charity, now how would you teach your children the ways of faith, hope, and charity? You go to a church that says, we need to be taking care of the social welfare of our people through faith, hope, and charity, not by calling to men who call themselves benefactors and say, oh, he has no coat. Go to this man. He will take a coat away from somebody who has lots of coats, and he will make that person give you a coat. That's not what John the Baptist said. That's not what Jesus preached. It's not what Yeshua preached. It's not what Yahweh preached. It's not what Yadivahi preached. It's not what Jehovah preached. I don't care who you call them. That's not the Spirit of Christ. It is the antithesis of Christ. It is Antichrist. 
And if that's the way you're going about things, you're anti-Christ. You can call yourself a Christian. You can call yourself a follower of Christ. But you're really going to be a Nicolaitan. A conquered people. That's what Nicolaity means. I'm just amazed. You know, they say, oh, we think it was somebody named Nicholas in uh, in history uh, that had this idea and he was teaching. There's no evidence of that. Uh, there's there's somebody who gave that opinion a long time ago. That's not evidence of that. Read the word in the Greek. Nicolaity. Conquered people. It's associated with Balaam. The era of Balaam. What does Balaam mean? Conquered people. <laughs> that's, that's what it means. How are they conquered? They're lovers of reward. They're lovers of benefits that do not come without strings attached. Why were they in bondage in Egypt? Because they needed the rewards of Egypt to survive because they were not prepared to survive the famine. So they went into bondage in Egypt. And they got benefits from Pharaoh. Now, he began to supply those benefits because he was rich. But he... Eventually, everybody, even in Egypt, except for the priests, went into this bondage where they had to pay 20% to the government. You know, there was a ceiling limit for them. There's Nobody else has that ceiling limit. I'll bet you, you know, I used to tell you, tell everybody uh, when Mubarak was still president of Egypt, that there was a ceiling limit on income tax in Egypt of 20%. You know, 2,000 years after Christ, thousands of years after um, Joseph, income tax in Egypt was still 20%, one-fifth. You make a million dollars, it's one-fifth. You make ten million dollars, it's one-fifth. I'll bet you that's going to change with your new democracy. (laughs) I haven't looked it up yet, but I'll bet you that's going to change. The rich are going to pay more than 20%. But then they'll pay pay your new Congress in Egypt, uh, you know, they'll bribe them, and they'll make exceptions, and they'll end up paying nothing. You know, like Rockefeller made $360 million one year, and they asked how much he paid in income tax. He said, not, nothing. $360 million, he paid nothing. You make, you make uh, $36 thousand dollars and you have to pay (laughs) so how's that happen it happens every time what's the big surprise you want to get all worked up and get upset at poor old Rockefeller Uh, you pity the guy you know how hard it's going to be for him to get into the kingdom of heaven he's got to fit to the eye of the needle because that would be easier for him Uh, to get into the heaven than under his present circumstances. Same way with all those, Bill Gates, all these guys. None are righteous. Oh, he gives away to charities, but all his charities advocate socialism and vaccinations. And speaking of vaccinations, we just added more information on preparingyou.com concerning if you, you go to that politics of health. And down there, there's there's information about vaccinations, including information about uh, legally refusing vaccinations, and 
articles about why you might want to do that uh, for yourself or your children, what have you. Because there may, there's a lot of money in vaccinations and it's going to become more and more compulsory because your nation is full of people who want to exercise authority one over the other. Now, you think you're not one of those people, I'm sure. You don't want to exercise authority one over the other. You don't want to become a nimrod, a tyrant. But the reality is you are. If you're sending your kids to public school or, or even taking the benefits of educating them at home but having the curriculum given to you by the government because the government is men who exercise authority call themselves benefactors, but they don't give you anything except what they take away from your neighbor. And it's legal to do that because you have made agreements with them. You've signed up. You're not idiotists like Peter was. You are a registered member of a system of socialism. And, you know, you say, well, I don't want socialist medicine, but I want socialist public education. We got along without public education. It was only a minority of students came out of public schools back in the uh, 1900s. Most kids were not educated in public schools, and yet we had one of the highest uh, you know, degrees of education anywhere in the world. Now, they're all going to public schools, and we score, what is it, 69th? We're <laughs> terrible scores. And now... We have whole homeschooling groups and stuff that you should talk to. That there's there's new curriculums coming, and we should have some guests on. That we'll talk about this that are just going to devastate your children. You should get them out of public school, even if you if it wasn't a covetous system. You should get them out of there because they are teaching them lies. I mean, I have a whole collection of school books that go all the way back to um, the 1800s that uh, I've accumulated in thrift stores and stuff very cheaply. You know, it's not, uh, I don't know, it may have value, but uh, you can go in and read the history books and even the math books, and you can see that they're not only dumbing down your children, they are teaching them lies. We just had a, a local lady mention that she's been a real advocate. She's known we've all homeschooled. She's always poo-pooed that and said, oh, no, you have to send them to public school. But the other day she wrote, a message that she thought that the schools were brainwashing their children. And she's very close to the kingdom. She just took in a whole family of kids, so mother and I think five children, and uh, took them into their house. And they're helping care for them. Now, that's, that's a big invasion. And they're not related. She just did it because she saw the need. And so that's, that's very kingdom-oriented. But... They're all going to public school. And yet, she just posted that those children going to public school are being brainwashed. So, do you really want that? <laughs> you know, well, but the reality is, is, you know, that's the way it is. And she could actually be getting money from the government for what she's doing. And she's not, not hasn't even considered it. I, I don't believe she's considered she didn't do it. So that's amazing. That's amazing. And the reality is that's what we have to do as a people. If you want to be free, souls under God, if you want to walk with God like Noah, 
you need to, you know, this giving and taking in marriage, and that has to do with giving and taking in contract because that word really means, see, you're marrying the state when you ask the state for benefits. The state's becoming your father. And we have articles up called No Man on Earth Father. Jesus said that. What's he talking about? The parents' patria, which is in your U.S. codes. It's, it's in the codes of other nations all over where the state becomes your father. It's the head of your family. And you're, you're in, you enter into agreements, covenants with the state to take care of you. And they, are in return, will have a, a power to exercise authority over you and force you to contribute. The problem is, is you're no longer living by faith, hope, and charity. And this is a process where, you know, it's a little bit less charity, and then it's a little bit more or less charity, and more of the forced benefits, forced uh, collection in order to provide guaranteed entitlements. And you just keep edging away from a society that is rooted in faith, hope, and charity, where neighbor takes care of neighbor and community takes care of its members through faith, hope, and charity, and philanthropic organizations are looking out for the truly needy of society. And you move away from that, and the government does it all. And then you wonder why you're in bondage. And you wonder why you have no control over your government. Well, you unleash the beast in in yourself, where you thought it was okay to covet your neighbor's goods. That's forbidden in the Ten Commandments. And Jesus said, if you want eternal life, keep the commandments. And I've had preachers tell me, no, you don't have to. That's ridiculous. It's absurd. Of course you have to. You won't do it perfectly, but that's, but if you're not striving to do it, you're not even trying. Are you trying to create a system where nobody has to force their neighbor through taxation to provide education? Are you trying to create a system that nobody has to pray to men who call themselves benefactors, but exercise authority to take care of the health care of your community? Are you trying to create that system or are you just slothfully sitting back and saying, let the government do it? You know, you're saying, oh, I don't want the government to do it. A lot of you are saying that. You know, a lot of Tea Partiers and Republicans and, and you know, I don't know, even guys who follow Ron Paul are saying, we don't want the government to do it. But what are you doing to create the alternative? You're not doing it in your churches. You're just singing and, you know, saying the magic words and and all that kind of stuff. And that's all in opposition to Christ. That's not what Christ came to do. He didn't come to make you feel good. He came to show you how to be good. Be perfect. And And you can't do that unless you start caring about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. And you're not doing it in the name of the Christ unless you're doing it by personal sacrifice giving up your life so that others may have life more abundant and, and it, it's not we're not trying to create a welfare state where people get to sit back and get fat and watch their TVs and not go to work because we got we got uh, a governing agent built into the system of God that if you don't work you don't eat you know you you have to contribute to each according to his contribution. But you decide what that is. You know, you gather together. And this is the way the early church did it. Tens, hundreds, and thousands. 
the early church, I mean, this is why you had these deacons. It's actually a derivation of the word that means ten. It also is a word that means servant. Why are those two words so similar? Because this system predates, goes way back. Rome did it. Um, The Teutons were doing it. The Israelites did it. Ten families get together, pick a minister who is titular in authority. In other words, he doesn't exercise authority. He's not standing between you and God. He is God's servant. And he can serve the community with the welfare needed for community by what you give him. So you watch him. You can watch this guy serving ten families. And he's connected with other ministers. So that ten families are not isolated. But ten families are a part of a nation. And it's what they call the tens, hundreds, and thousands, or tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. It's basically a network of charity. Where you're not bound by contract. You're not incorporated. You don't sell your right to choose in order to get guaranteed benefits. You maintain your right to choose in order to be able to provide the benefits of society in a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. That's why the Bible was written according to Wycliffe. That's why it was given to you. So that you could begin to do that. And that's called seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's what you need to do. And we're going to, and we're going to see that theme in the book of Hebrews when we begin to study that next time on Keys of the Kingdom. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're talking about the kingdom of God. And in the last show, we talked about some new entries on one of our websites. We have many, many websites. Preparing You, Y-O-U, PreparingYou.com is a wiki site that is constructed by the people, for the people, and of the people. And they put on all kinds of information and talk about different skills and uh, 
share information with others, and almost anybody can become a wiki editor, an editor of those pages. You can do it from your computer. It's very simple. It's not hard to do, and we have whole teams of people that will help you do it and help you learn how to do it. It's not as complicated as, you know, regular programming or uh, even programming HTML and PHP pages as you see on the Internet. It's really just kind of a text editor. And you can put up your own pages. And uh, a lot of people who thought themselves to be computer illiterate <laughs> have actually started to put stuff up on those pages and uh, have become editors to the page. And if there are typos, you can fix other people's articles and they will see that you've repaired them. And you can work together as teams and get to know one another in doing this. And as I said, we... Uh, Recently put up a page on health and uh, and uh, other pages, um, you know, things like multiple sclerosis and, and vaccinations and also on money. Uh, we There was an interest in this Bitcoin that is going uh, around the Internet. And there's some meetings with the government. And, uh, of course, the government has an interest in anything that appears as money. And because the government runs on money and... It creates most of the money that most people use. Actually, a lot of the money you use, you, you created. You talk about complex issues. That would be a very complex issue to discuss, and that's not going to be the theme of this show. But we have a little article, and you can read on it. And the fact is that a lot of people don't understand how economies work, how, how money works, how it affects society. And we need to understand that because the Bible talks about money. It talks about the love of money being the root of all evil. But it actually isn't the word there that they use for love of money. It's not money that is the problem. It's covetousness. And if you look into the origin of the word there that you see, uh, it actually is a word that has to do with coveting. It isn't about the money itself. Originally, money was, you know, the early forms of money was like gold and silver and copper coins and stuff like that. And all those were were substances. They weren't. Uh, they weren't even. You didn't even use the word coined as we see it today. Coin is when you say that you know an ounce of silver is a dollar, and then you stamp on an ounce of gold uh, twenty dollars or fifty dollars. And now you have coined the idea that. An ounce of gold is worth 50 ounces of silver. You've stated that. Well, now that's a coin. Uh, it's not, it's not a commodity. Somebody has defined that this coin is worth this much of this other commodity. And that's, you, you've moved away from just weights and measures. Because what, the way you would do it is this is an ounce of gold. And it's worth an ounce of gold. And this is an ounce of copper. And it's worth an ounce of copper. And this is an ounce of silver. And that's worth an ounce of silver. And you could, you could measure how much silver is in the coin. And you could say it's 999 fine silver. That's just weights and measures. But when you start saying this silver is guaranteed to exchange for this much gold or this much uh, gold exchanges for this much silver. Now you're coining, you're stamping a value. Somebody's dictating a value. 
It's no longer a commodity. Before, it was just a commodity. You know, gold miner goes and mines gold, and, and he gives so much to the smelter guy, and the smelter guy turns it into coin and gives, you know, all the coin back to the uh, the gold miner minus his labor for turning it in, into coins. And then they both go out and they spend it on olive oil and and fishes and uh, and uh, grain or whatever it is they want to buy. And then money goes into circulation. That's that's a government of the people for the people by the people. But if you give somebody the power to say that this much gold is worth this much silver, now they're coining, now they're dictating, now they're ruling over something. And you certainly do that. But it changes the nature of your money. It's not, you're no longer, the money is no longer a commodity money. It's something else. And you can get arrested for counterfeiting it. (laughs) Or even competing against it. And uh, there's a 486 in the codes on money, and we talk about that on that page. And show that, you know, you can get in a lot of trouble by trying to create an alternative currency, even a digital currency. And uh, so, you know, a person needs to understand that. We warned people about creating liberty dollars and told them what the problem was. And they didn't listen, and they got themselves into a lot of trouble. I mean, I couldn't believe they were doing so many stupid things. Uh, the reality is, is the money systems that the world creates in all countries, they always collapse eventually because men are greedy. It's all based on covetousness. And most of society is greedy, so they're all going to fail too. And uh, and it's that covetousness that's the problem. And it doesn't matter whether you're using bitcoins or silver coins or uh, gold coins or, or or paper money. If the covetousness there is there, there's going to be a problem. It's going to serve ill to society. Now, with that said, there are forms of money that lend themselves to covetousness, uh, speculative coins, uh, speculative, speculative money, uh, draws the covetousness out of us, it draws the greed out of us. And so there's more danger in that than there is in other forms, such as those that are produced by actual manual labor. Uh, one of the things about bitcoins is you can only produce so many of them, and then they become rare. And therefore, they will increase in value as more people show an interest in using them. So you imagine that the value is going up because you can buy more things with them. But the reality is is that the value hasn't changed because it's not really a product of labor like gold and silver would be. And I'll give you an example. Even gold and silver are not perfect. In the gold camps in Alaska... Um, a carton of eggs might be worth more than an ounce of gold because you couldn't get the eggs and there was lots of gold going around. So the value of things fluctuated, but that's in a commodity market. You know, you have to think of your money should always be nothing more than a commodity, an item of trade. That lends itself to a better society and a better economy. As soon as you get away from that, as soon as you coin or stamp uh, a value on that that source and give someone the power to control that value, as you do with, you know, like uh, paper notes, uh, 
you open a door to all kinds of problems. Now you couple that with a society that's becoming more and more covetousness, uh, more and more covetous. Um, you, it is a recipe for absolute economic disaster. So the solution is stop being covetous. And that's something we need to practice. And of course that brings us back to the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, you have to practice charity. You have to practice giving to one another. Now, how do you do that? And this is another problem that came up on the network recently, and we've talked about it in previous shows, is that someone says they have a need, a widow. Um, you know, it could be a widow, an orphan, or whatever. It could be somebody who just had an injury or something. They have a need. They say, I have a need. I am short of funds. I, I need help. So how do we respond? Do we just throw money at them? You know, that's a phrase that we often hear with modern governments. You just throw money at it? Well, they ask for help. Don't we just give it to them? Well, who are they? Do we know them? See, in, in a true church setting, you know who's in the church. You know who's in your congregation. You know whether they're telling you the truth. You know that men are liars. All men are not liars. You know, that was in David's haste. He said, oh, men are liars. But men are liars. They lie to themselves. They lie to others. Somebody comes up and tells me, you know, that they need help. And we've given that example. You know, the guy on the street corner, they're actually doing shifts. They're not homeless. You know, there may be some homeless out there, but there, there's actually teams of guys working corners. And they're, they're getting a government check and they're not homeless and they're doing just fine. And they go out there and beg and people hand them $10, $20 and they feel good. So they provided a service. They made those people feel good. But it, it's, it's not righteous. It's not what people should be doing because you don't know who that guy is. You don't know that he's got an SUV over there parked in the, parking lot you don't know that he's got lots of money he just does this because he likes to screw around with people you don't know and that's irresponsible and so just as if you were to go to the governments who exercise authority one over the other and force your their your neighbors to contribute to your welfare they're going to ask questions they're going to want to know how much you make and where you live and who you are you know, do you have children? Do you have family? Da da da. They're gonna have ask you all kinds of questions. You fill out those questions, and you get you're gonna get welfare from them. But they're not gonna ask, "Are you moral?" They're not gonna ask, "Are you?" Uh, well, they might eventually. You know, I've never filled out one of these things, so I don't know all of what they ask. But are they gonna ask, "Do you have a drinking problem? Do you have, uh, you know?" Uh, pornography problem do you have you know what 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 do you what kind of problems you have that have led you into this situation where you need help because just throw money at it it's not going to solve that problem well the church should ask those questions and you should expect those questions to be asked you know you have a need your kids are hungry how come you know you live in Spokane and you your kids are starving you live in a house that your uh, was given you by your relatives, by your your parents, and you don't have to pay any rent. You have to pay taxes on it. Uh, you've got, you know, most of your kids are over 15 years of age. Some of them are well over 20. 
and your and your young kids are starving? Why? We're going to ask that question. We want to know because we want to solve the problem. We don't want to feed the problem. Maybe the problem is you're slothful. Maybe you're a bad money manager. Maybe you're squandering your money. You know, I mean, we got to find out what the problem is if we're going to help you. If if your charity is not strengthening the poor, you're committing the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. So anyway, common thing. So we are going to get to Hebrews and we are going to start looking at it, but we need to start uh, realizing that the church is a government. It's defined as a government in Black's Law Dictionary. I didn't make it up. It says it's one form of government. Well, the form of government that it is, is the government based on faith, hope, and charity. That's a government of the people, for the people, by the people. Where if somebody has a need for a coat or food or, or, or shelter or anything, we supply it out of charity. That's going to produce a different kind of society. And that's what we need to be doing, is producing that different kind of society. Because if you base it on force, men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. Covet means, as Kennedy once said, Kennedy has this speech that many people have heard that he gave in, I think, the Waldorf Astoria uh, Hotel. And uh, he talks about a vast conspiracy that uh, has uh, obtained human and material resources, and done so through covet means. It's very clear he says covet means in the recording. When you see a transcription, it talks about covert means. Now, he had a Bostonian accent, but either that's a Freudian slip, or that's what he actually meant, because that actually fits even better than covert means. It was done through somewhat covert means. And he's talking about fighting this conspiracy that is international in scope and so that man can be what he was born to be, free and independent. And then shortly later, somebody shot him. <laughs> so, And you can add conspiracy theories to that. But the point is, what he said was really true. And uh, it's been true throughout history. And the Bible talks about this time and time and time again. So how do you become free and independent without becoming responsible and without caring about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself? As a society, you cannot become free unless you do that, which is why Christ was saying, seek the kingdom, seek to be responsible, start loving one another, caring about one another, caring for one another through sacrifice, because that's what Christ came to do, to serve and to sacrifice himself for others. And we don't all have to get crucified, but we are crucified daily by choice when we come together in faith, open charity. You go to church to help your neighbor, and nobody in your congregation needs help, then you say, let's get together and help somebody not in our congregation, someone outside of our congregation. Maybe another congregation somebody needs help, so we have to connect with them. Or maybe somebody that's not in any congregation, congregation of the church are networking with us, maybe they need help. Let's go help them. Because that's casting our bread on the waters. That's the red heifer. That's the sacrifice of the red heifer. Until we begin that, you can kiss freedom goodbye. 
I don't care who you elect, Ron Paul, all that stuff. That's all politics. It's not going to work. It's not going to change. Nothing's going to change until you change. And you can't change your neighbor, so you can only change yourself. And you really can't even change yourself, but you can be changed if you admit that you need to be changed. And you need to be changed because you've been living by covet means. You see, you've been playing that game. You have to stop playing that game, start playing the game of Christ. And it is a an important game. It is a game that involves the winner takes your soul. So you're either moving towards the kingdom, the system of government based on faith, hope, and charity, or you're moving somewhere else. It's your choice. And you can't do it without gathering together because how can you love your neighbor if you don't gather together with them? And guess what? Most of your neighbors aren't going to want to gather. But the more of you who gather and the more of you who start taking care of one another, in any way you can afford, just start with something, baby steps. The, the, you're going to start changing the collective consciousness. And you're going to have to strive at this. And you're going to have to persevere. And those are terms that Christ used. And so anyway, that's what we're talking about at His Holy Church. That's what we're preaching. The repentance. Turn around. Go the other way. And it's going to take you to do it. I, all I can do is talk about it on the radio. I, I can send you emails about it. But I can't. I just don't have, you know, like I say, if, if you run out of food, what am I supposed to do? Email you a picture of food? We had up this family in Spokane where the kids were actually showing signs of malnutrition. And one individual said, oh, we just have to help them. Just start sending them food and everything. Well, what was I supposed to do? Mail them a couple of steaks? Um, you know, I could send money and you go down to the store and you could buy them meat and stuff because they didn't have much meat in their diet. But, uh, and they evidently needed other things, but on further investigation, I found out they had a lot of problems in their family that needed to be addressed because all I would do would be make them dependent on us to give them what they should have been able to provide for themselves. They had the resources. They just were not managing them right. What they needed was counseling. Now, they might need some immediate help with food, but what they, they weren't out of food. They were just not eating right. And that was about education. Because the food was available, they just weren't pursuing it properly. So to really help them, to strengthen the poor, we needed to do something different. And as we pursued that, uh, we we discovered what it was. But they had to participate. We participated, they participated. They have to, you know, repent and go a different way. That's not going to put them in such a vulnerable position. This is people helping people. That's it. That's the kingdom of God. But they actually do it in an organized fashion, not because somebody rules over them, but because they realize that if we do this with teamwork, we can do it better. You know, if each of us goes over, if we have ten guys and each of us go over and try to pick up this log to move it to another location, we're not going to get it moved. It's too heavy. But if we all go together and simultaneously reach down and pick it up and say, heave ho, it'll come up off the ground and it'll go where you can take it. 
But you have to choose to work together in the kingdom of God. Because we don't have taskmasters who are going to whip you if you don't pick it up. And that's just the way it is. That's that's freedom. That's the other form of government. So the kingdom of heaven is not for the slothful. It's not for the self-indulgent rich. It's for the rich who are willing to unload some of their burdens and give to the poor. And uh, and even the poor have to give amongst each other. And that was one of the things that China has always been plagued with poor people. And it's been that way because the warlords or the uh, the different leaders just were ruthless in ruling over the Chinese. But the real problem was the Chinese, the poor in China, preyed upon the poor in China. They had this whole thing in their culture. Now, I'm not saying it's to, you know, I'm not picking on Chinese, but it's just in their culture that's just prevalent. Just like today in American culture, it's we think it's absolutely okay to have public education at the expense of your neighbor, who you force to pay into that public education uh, through property tax. And And it shouldn't be that way. That's not a free nation. You should have, you could have public schools in a free nation, but the public schools would be supported by free will offerings. And they used to be. Even when public schools were in the minority in the country, and most people were not educated in public schools, the public schools received donations from people to to stay in business. Because they they didn't tax them enough to maintain the public schools, but starting down that road opened a Pandora's box, which has brought us to our present dilemma. So anyway, we're gonna, uh, as I said, we're gonna take a look at Hebrews, and it's gonna take us show after show after show, and we'll air them in a number of different places, and eventually we'll have them as a as a study. Group, But we needed to lay some foundation here as to what we're talking about. We always do, and we always go back to that. Today is, according to some calendars, is a, a Day of Atonement. And there's a Christian Day of Atonement uh, throughout history. is based on the English translation of the Jewish Holy Day, Yom Kippur. In the original uh, Hebrew, the Bible calls that day Yom uh, Hakapurim, the Day of Atonements. And this Yom Kippur, it, it was the holiest day of the year for the Jewish people. While the temple in Jerusalem was standing in Bible times, you know, 70 CE, the Kohen Gadol, or high priest, was mandated by the Torah to perform a complex set of special services and sacrifices for Yom Kippur and attain divine atonement, the word kippur, meaning atone in the Hebrew. Our understanding of what they were doing is actually distorted, because by the time you got Christ on the scene, the Pharisees had twisted the translations so that you had unmoored the purposes of what they were talking about from their original meaning. And they created a lot of uh, complex, mindless rituals 
that really had nothing to do with the original Hebrew text. And this is really easy to do with Hebrew, which is a, is a precise language, but it's metaphoric. Uh, almost every word has multiple definitions. Uh, one will be an abstract definition, and the other one will be a meaning that is, you know, something specific, some physical thing, you know. And we've gone over that before. A kidney is reins of control, and it's a kidney. And so when they say kidney, are they talking about reins of control? Or are they talking about kidney? Well, in some 18 places, they translate kidney reins. In other places, they translate it kidney. Well, if you translate it in the wrong way in the right place, the right way in the wrong place, you're going to create confusion. And that's what they did. And so you don't even understand what the Kohen Gadol was. They actually think, a lot of people think that the, somehow the Levites were to stand between the people and God, as if uh, you couldn't give to God unless you gave to the Kohen, the priest. Um, that's ridiculous. It's absurd. You're all altars of clay in the kingdom of God. But you have these altars of stone, which is another form of government, where the leaders, the Kohen, are titular. They have no exercising authority. They don't have any funds to give away unless you choose to give to them. Now, you should tithe in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We'll cover that. Uh, but you tithe according to their service. You don't, you don't have to give to a particular guy. This puts the power in your hands. And... Uh, that makes you the government of the people for the people and by the people. Anything else is bondage. Anything else is slavery. Anything else is not holy. Anything else will end up feeding on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and not the tree of life and will not walk with God. So, because God wants you to be free souls under Him and His guidance. And we're going to talk more about how to do that in the book of Hebrews when we return the keys to the kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. We're talking about Yom Kippur on our way to talking about Hebrews. And Yom Kippur, of course, a lot of people think, oh, that's a Jewish holiday. But the reality is there were a great many Christians. There's a whole variety of groups of Christians that deal with the Day of Atonement, which is what Yom Kippur means. And atonement is something that, uh, and we'll talk about that conflict in a bit. Years ago, I was out here and I, I worked seven days a week uh, raising sheep and children and, and farming the desert, which is a lot of work. And one day, I uh, I looked on the calendar and I saw this word Yom Kippur I'd heard it before and seen it but didn't know really anything about it and knew it had to do with atonement and stuff so anyway and rather than looking up there was no Google in those days so <laughs> I got interested and I saw you know in parentheses Yom Kippur meant day of atonement and on the calendar and I thought well I'm going to take that day off I'm going to just walk out on the desert and that's what I did. I just I left all the work behind, and I left early in the morning, and I fasted all day, and I didn't even take water with me. I don't believe 
and walked out across the desert. And it's usually in October, and it's not always that hot. But I went miles and miles in a big loop out across the desert. And I had a tradition of doing this, just my own personal tradition, every year out here in the desert. I would do this. And one of those times, I came back a long way uh, and came across a piece of property. And I was walking across the piece of property, and I was suddenly struck as I often am and have been since uh, I was a little kid with a premonition, uh, you know, uh, an epiphany. Standing on a little piece of ground in the middle of nowhere, I suddenly realized that I needed to own this property. I needed to obtain the property. I don't even want to use the word own because that's not really what I felt. I needed to obtain this property. I would not hold it forever, but I was to seek to obtain it. I didn't even know whose property it was. Uh, I I had an idea of where I was at. I knew how to get back, but I didn't know exactly. I'd never been to this spot before. But I looked at the ground, and I looked to the left and to the right around me. You know, this is what I feel, inner compass kind of thing. And I knew that I was to get and obtain this property. And I'm actually having a little epiphany about it right now, but... Anyway, the the point is, is that happened on this Day of Atonement. And, and it, you know, Day of Atonement is calculated by different calendars. All that's irrelevant because it's this inner compass that you really need to develop. And it's fine to study all these things, but if they supplant the inner compass of the Holy Spirit, you're not walking with God, you're walking with your knowledge your flesh and blood knowledge, what you learn intellectually. And the spiritual walking with God, you will know things, not by the knowledge of men, not by flesh and blood, but you will know them because you will have an inner knowing, a guiding of the Holy Spirit. And I I don't know how many times that has saved my life and the lives of others because I will listen to that Holy Spirit and, and seek to always listen to the Holy Spirit over what my intellect will tell me to do. And this is, this is the big challenge. This is one of your big challenges. Are you going to listen to the Holy Spirit? And then uh, how, how do you know it's the Holy Spirit? So anyway, we're going to be talking about Hebrews. The Pharisees had gotten away from that. So when they read the Bible, they had convoluted an interpretation of what they, and translated the Bible, what they were supposed to do on Yom Kippur. And they had broke it down into these complex religious rituals and had unmoored them from their real meaning. And, uh, and this is common. Uh, these services were considered to be the most important part of the Yom Kippur. I mean, these actual rituals. Because, uh, through them, the Kohen Gadol, made atonement for all Jews and the world. And, you know, that's, of course, superstitious nonsense. It was the spirit of what those words were describing that makes atonement. And Christ knew that. And so Christ made that atonement. And But you're not atoned for yet until you conform to Christ in his spirit. You see... You can't be forgiven unless you forgive. I mean, Christ said that. Now, Christ did his part, but if you don't forgive, you're not forgiven. If you don't repent, you're not saved. You have to actually repent, and you have to know what you're repenting of. 
And one of the guidelines for knowing what you're repenting of are, are you still coveting your neighbor's goods through the agency of government in order to obtain benefits at their expense through men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority? Well, then you haven't repented if you're still doing that. If you're not turning around and trying to create a society that is not dependent upon coveting or coveting means, then you are still unsaved. Not because Christ didn't do his part. It's because you're not doing your part. You're not repenting and you're not seeking the kingdom of God, nor are you seeking his righteousness. You're still coveting your neighbor's goods. You're still slothful in the love of their neighbor because you're not creating that alternative system. You think that if you vote somebody in, he'll do it for you, which is what they thought when they elected Saul. He'll do it for us. That act alone is called the rejection of God. You see, so all the people trying to do that are missing it. They're, they're off the mark. And they probably already have the mark of the beast. <laughs> but anyway, we won't go into that now. Uh, during this service, according to their traditions, the Kohen Gadol, high priest, entered into this Holy of Holies in the center of the temple and the only time of the year that anyone went inside. Doing so required specific purification preparations, including, you know, five immersions in what they call the mikvah, this ritual bath, uh, four changes of clothing. Seven days prior to Yom Kippur, this high priest was uh, sequestered in uh, the Palahedron chambers in the temple, where he has uh, reviewed the services with uh, the sages familiar with the temple and was sprinkled with uh, spring water containing ashes of the red heifer as purification. And, of course, I've told you many times the red heifer had nothing to do with a heifer, had nothing to do with the color red. But we'll keep you in suspense on that for those who are new listeners and newcomers. And we'll explain that at a later time. Let's stick on this. On this day of Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol, high priest, had to follow a precise order of services and sacrifices and purification. He wore these five sets of garments. Three of them were kind of golden, and two more were white linen. He was immersed in this mikvah, you know, five times. He washed his hands and his feet ten times, because he had that. When he was immersed, he had washed him twice. Uh, sacrifices included two daily lambs, one bull, two goats, two rams, with accompanying uh, uh, meals, offering wine, uh, other libations, and and free and, and three uh, incense offerings. Uh, you know, kind of a regular two daily and an additional one uh, for Yom Kippur. So anyway, this high priest entered into the Holy of Holies uh, three times, uh, the Tetragrammaton, you know, this Yadevahe, was pronounced three times, once for each confession, and there's this whole s- system of confessions. Uh, the central theme of all this, uh, these rituals is this atonement in repentance. And, of course, they had become so focused on the rituals that they had neglected 
the weightier matters that Jesus lists off in the Bible. They had their, you know, all their incense and, and their spices and all this kind of things. Uh, but they did not, they did not repent because they had unmoored the principles of all this. I mean, if you go in, you read Sacrifice of Sophistry as an example. You can get it on our website. Or um, I think it's the second chapter of the book, Thy Kingdom Come. You'll start seeing that, you know, this idea of even bulls and rams, they, there's an alternative meaning to these things. The, the whole altars of clay and stone, these are describing functions of your government and how your government operates. It, you think it has to do with these mindless religious rituals because that's what the Pharisees were telling people and the Pharisees got it wrong according to Christ so why do you think why do you go back and study what the Pharisees were doing you should find out why they had it wrong you see because the modern Christians don't wouldn't recognize the real Christ if he came some of you might and some of you are starting to realize that Seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness means you have to start actually physically loving your neighbor as yourself. Taking care of his social welfare needs in faith, hope, and charity instead of with men who exercise authority one over the other because Jesus said so. Because Yeshua said so. Because the Bible says so. But your local pastor, he doesn't say so. You need any help, you go to the men who exercise authority. You know, you just come here and we'll make you feel good about it. Because we'll tell you you're saved because you said the magic words. Jewish people traditionally observe this holy day with, uh, you know, approximately 25-hour period of fasting and intensive prayer. But because they weren't attending to the weightier matters, because they were seeking kings like Saul, God wasn't hearing those prayers. On an individual basis, sometimes people are completely duped and God will run out and meet you because he sees deeper into your heart than I can. But you are following false religion. Your religion, remember, the definition of religion 200 years ago, the definition of religion at the time of Christ from the point of view of the Bible was how you took care of the needy of your society, how you fulfilled your obligation to love your neighbor as yourself to God and your fellow man. That was religion. Well, today you do it with men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. That's what you have to atone for. That's what you have to repent of. And that's what you, and that's what His Holy Church is about. Is to give you, you know, a lot of people think that they, we have these Google groups. If you want to go join the Living Network, you have to join this Google group. Now, you can actually meet up with physical people if you're not on the net. But if you're on the net, you join those Google groups and that gives you an opportunity. That all they are is a tool by which you actually meet physical people in real congregations of record where they pick a minister and that minister picks a minister and they begin to network with one another so that they can begin to take care of one another in faith, hope, and charity when there's real need. And we are coming to a time in history where there's going to be real need and you need to do that. But I don't want you to come together out of fear. I want you to come together out of love for one another. 
And Christ will know the difference. And actually, we're often discovering the difference because by the way in which you come together. You come together because you want to be free. You come together where you want to be safe. No, that's that's not why Christ... Christ didn't come to be free. Christ didn't come to be safe. Christ didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And he's explaining this. So when you go to church, are you coming to serve, to give, to take care of others in a righteous way that strengthens the poor or not? You see, so this whole Yom Kippur, this is the message of Yom Kippur. The tenth day of the seventh month of Tishri. And also regarded the Sabbath of Sabbath. And this whole Rosh Hashanah. Uh, referred to in the Torah as uh, Yom Teruah, I think. The first day of the month according to the Hebrew calendar. At least, you know, there's all kinds of Hebrew calendars out there. You know, some some years there's two months of Adar. <laughs> That's right, they just add an extra month. You know, it can get confusing. Anyway, this Yom Kippur completes this annual period known uh, in Judaism as the High Holy Days. Uh, and commences with Rosh Hashanah. And this Yom Kippur is observed by many secular Jews who may not observe other holidays. Well, the fact is that it's now also recognized by many Christians who also, many Christians are doing the feast, like Feast of the Tabernacle. But they're not creating a network of faith, open charity. They're not coming together to take care of one another. They say, oh, we keep the feasts. They don't even know the purpose of the feasts. In order to have a network of tens, hundreds, and thousands, how do you get to know the congregation that's 150 miles away or 1,500 miles away? How do you keep those connections? So that if they have an absolute disaster, you want to come to their aid. How did they do that? Feast of Tabernacles. Because when you go there, your sons and daughters will meet and your sons and daughters will marry people in those other valleys. Thousands of miles away. And you will have a blood connection to those other communities. You had to work at the kingdom. If you're going to have a government of the people, for the people, and by the people, you have to work at it. You have to strive, which is why Jesus said strive. You have to seek, which is why Jesus said to seek. You have to do it in a righteous way, which is why he talked about love and charity. Same words. Faith and hope. You have to gather together. You can't just come to the festival, you know, a couple days ahead and want to see, well, where is everything? You need to start working on that festival today for next year. Working on it. Contributing to it. We have a burning bush festival and we actually knew we were going to have a small number of people show up this time because we have, you know, missionary parties going out and we have another festival in, in the Midwest and, and, uh, it's a huge expense. I mean, this is a big country to come all the way this way. So we knew we were going to have our numbers down and that was okay. And we had, you know, instead of having whole families that could have come, we might add one member from a family. And this saves them money, and this is good. But we also know that they're working in their local areas to build their local congregations to do the jobs that they need to do, like the missionary work. And so, but 
if we were going to show an example to the world, we need to build the congregations locally that are actually doing the job and then come together so that we have something to connect at the Feast of Tabernacles, which we call the Burning Bush Festival. And we need to start making it the outreach that it was. Early on, somebody said, oh, well, you know, we should only invite, you know, good people in congregations. No, that's not what Feast of Tabernacles, it says, invite the stranger in your midst. Because this is your outreach, to show them what a free government looks like and how it works. How it takes care of the needy of its society without using a gun to the head of your neighbor. Without forcing the contributions of your neighbor, but with free will offerings. So that you create a the spirit of a free society and those people who want to walk in those ways cast up. And want to be heard by God. Want to return to the ways of God. It's not the mindless ritual that we want to return to. It's atonement. And atonement means to repent and turn around and start creating a society based on love. It, it you know, and we're not talking the hippie hippie dippy free love, we're talking about righteous love. Righteous responsibility of commitment, of caring for one another. You you say love, honor and cherish till death do us part. That's when you have to do it. That that's you it doesn't mean love, honor and cherish until you're tired of it. It's love, honor, and cherish. Your commitment is before God. Let no man or yourself break that apart. Continue that commitment. It builds character. So Yom Kippur completes those holy days, but this uh, ever of Yom Kippur, uh, which is actually the Eve day of uh, that day, uh which is commemorated with these two festival meals and this giving of charity and asking others for forgiveness uh, in this Hebrew month of Tishri. This This is the key because we have offended one another. So anyway, if we look at some of the general observances and there's a reason why we're going through all this before we really get hot and heavy into Hebrews um, And, you know, it may not be for another couple of shows until we really get into Hebrews. But in Leviticus 16, 29, it says, Mandates establishment of this holy day uh, on the the tenth day of the seventh month of the day of atonement for the sins. Don't get caught up in the specifics of that. Get caught up in the spirit of forgiveness and giving. And charity. Get caught up in the kingdom of God, in the ways of the kingdom of God, not in the ritual itself. Don't worship the ritual. Follow the spirit of sacrifice and forgiveness. You know, I know I see so many people say, "Well, I've forgiven them, but I never want to see them again." <laughs> uh, why not? If you forgave them, what's the where's the pain? Where's the injury? Where's the heartache? It's gone. It's Forgiveness works. Real forgiveness works. Mental forgiveness, imaginary forgiveness doesn't work. And so therefore we become afraid. So, anyway, this Sabbath of the Sabbath, this Day of Atonement, 
And Leviticus 23-27 decrees that this Yom Kippur is this uh, strict day of rest. Rest from what? Well, rest from eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Rest from your own willfulness and submitting to the willfulness of God. The will of God. You see, that's the problem. Is that we decided to decide for ourselves and we need to rest from that. We need to fast from that. And dwell in the Holy Spirit. Live in the Holy Spirit. Be guided by the Holy Spirit. Keeping the ritual, the physical ritual, doesn't make that a reality in our life. But, you know, fasting, waiting upon the Lord. Uh, there were other prohibitions during this period. It talks about no eating and drinking. Well, the, Again, eating and drinking of what? Well, eating and drinking of the tree of knowledge. You know, not wearing of leather shoes. You know, uh, we were allowed to kill animals to, to, to cover ourselves and protect ourselves. Does it really have to do with leather shoes? Or are these symbols of something else? No bathing and washing. Well, you know, the high priest, he's, he's washing all the time. Uh, you know, we go to churches a lot of times to imagine that we are cleansing ourselves, but we're not actually repenting and turning around. It makes us feel good. And we think we're washing, but we're washing ourselves as if we can save ourselves. So, symbolically, we're going to have to realize that we can be washed. We can be cleansed, but we can't do it ourselves. We cannot provide the covering ourselves. We cannot eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but must receive of the Holy Spirit. It talks about no anointing oneself with perfumes or lotions. Is it the perfumes or lotions that's key to that prohibition? Or is it anointing ourselves? We can't anoint ourselves. We must be anointed. What we're doing is recognizing that we can't make this happen, a reality, ourselves. That this is a relationship. That's another thing, no matter the relation. It's a relationship with God and the Holy Spirit guiding us so that we walk with that Holy Spirit. That's what atonement is bringing to us. And that's what that day is all about. So it's great that we're beginning Hebrews on that day. And we will finish it much later so that you get a clearer picture of what Holy of Holies really means. Till then, may peace be upon your house and may God be with you. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.